So some years ago when I was sitting a retreat at IMS, Joseph Goldstein made the comment that we should notice how the mind builds houses of thought and then lives in them. And so I wanted to talk tonight about tearing down the house. How do we get out of that cycle of stories? So already in the groups, as we've talked to you, um, we've heard a lot of stories of different kinds of suffering. This is pretty common at retreats. And we hear about all of the ways that we get caught in the different the cycles of suffering and, and how often we see our lives after a while through the lens of whatever difficulty we're having. One of my teacher friends sometimes likes to say, may your past not hold you in captivity. May your past not hold you in captivity. So a while back, I was having a quite difficult time in one area of my life, and I had a very difficult meeting to go to. And I knew it was going to be, there were going to be people there who were angry at me, and it was going to be kind of unpleasant. And so I called up my good friend Ajahn Amaro, who is a monk, to get some advice. And... um, we talked about it and he gave me some different things to think about and, you know, we chatted and then it came to the end of the conversation and I said, okay, do you have any last words, you know, anything you want to send me out the door with? And he thought for a minute and he said, yes, don't suffer. And I thought, well, he's not going to the meeting. I'm going to the meeting. So what is this don't suffer business, you know, really? But of course I also got kind of curious, like, what did he mean? And how could I do that? And what would it be to go to this difficult meeting and not to suffer? So there are going to be a lot of stories tonight that I'm going to weave together. We'll see where they take us. So most of you, when you were growing up, you were given a story of some way that you were, somehow you were held in your family. You might have been the good one, or you might have been the bad one, or you might have been the responsible one, or you might have been the mischievous one, or the lazy one, or the bright one. Or, you know. And somewhere, of course, always hung out in front, kind of like a carrot, was held the possibility that maybe if you worked hard enough, you could get to be perfect whatever perfect was. And if you were like me, you had a parent who always let you know that it wasn't quite good enough. You weren't there yet. Whoops, am I? So you might want to turn me down just a little bit. Yeah, that might be part of the problem. I'll speak up and you turn the volume down. So recently I went... (laughs) to my 50th high school reunion, which was quite an event. And it was really interesting to see. It was an interesting group of people. And um, I hadn't actually seen all but two or three of them. I hadn't seen them 
for most of those 50 years. You know, 48, I think, for, for most of them. And 50 for many. And so it was really interesting to see some of the kids who had been, were then kids now, <laughs> now 68 years old, some of the people who had been labeled as not so bright or a bit lazy or those kinds of things had actually gone on to have great success. Now I've disappeared completely. Great success in college and in their lives. And others who had, you know, the ones who were listed in the yearbook as destined for great things hadn't actually, you know, done such great things. And so, you know, you got to see that these stories that we had been equipped with actually didn't hold. So tonight I want to look at a few stories uh, about suffering and the endings of it. So one of the threads I want to follow is actually a body thread. And so we all know how easy it is with these bodies of ours to create stories around the least twinge, right? And so um, one person that I was thinking about as I thought about this talk was somebody that I knew who as a child um, had a great deal of difficulty with her body and had to undergo a number of surgeries. And she wasn't very well protected by her parents in this process. And um, she was sort of discounted as being damaged by a mother and there were doctors, this was many years ago now, maybe 50 years ago, there were difficult doctors who didn't really know how to deal with children or make them feel safe in the medical world. And there certainly were lots of hospitals that weren't very child-friendly. And so her whole attitude and understanding and story about her body developed through that story of suffering. So that's one story. In a second story, the beginning of the suffering, it's my own story, And it happened about 15 years ago, and I'd been married to my husband for about 12 years at the time. And I fell in love with someone else, which happens sometimes. And the someone else in this case was someone who practiced in this lineage, and it's not something my husband has done too much of. And I quickly became quite convinced that my marriage needed to end and that I needed somebody who practiced and I left and I came back and you know went through quite a lot of struggle and continued to think that it probably was going to end. Okay, so that's the second story. There's four of them all together. So in the third story, it's this Buddhist story, it's from the suttas, and it's about a young man whose name was Ahimsa. And Ahimsa was a very dedicated spiritual practitioner, even as a young man. And he went to a school where he could get training in spiritual practices. And he did very, very well. And his teachers really loved him. And the other students, of course, began to get a little jealous after a while. And so um, they cooked up a plot. And so they went to the teacher and they said, this Ahimsa fellow, he's sleeping with your wife. And the teacher said, no, you know, Ahimsa would never do such a thing. 
But the students persisted, and you know how that is sometimes when those kind of seeds get dropped in over and over again. And so after a while, the teacher began to wonder, well, maybe they're right. Maybe he is. And then as he wondered some more, he began to think that he saw evidence that Ahimsa was sleeping with his wife. So finally, as his upset and anger grew, he called Ahimsa into his office, and he said, I have a new practice for you. And Ahimsa, who was a good and devoted student, really devoted to his teacher, said, yes, what is it? And the teacher said, I want you to go and I want you to kill 1,000 people. And I want you to keep some record so that I know that you have killed 1,000 people. And so in the last story that we'll do some work with is the story of one of the great Chinese emperors, the Emperor Wu, who lived in about the 12th century. And he was a great warrior, but he was also a spiritual seeker. And it's really hard if you're an emperor to be a spiritual seeker because most people just see that you're the emperor. And so they want to keep you happy and on their side. And they try to tell you things that they think you want to hear, but they don't necessarily tell you the truth. And so he was not getting very far in his spiritual practices. He realized that he wasn't getting good teachings. So those are the beginnings of our stories. So the Buddha teaches throughout the suttas, throughout all of the teachings, about the nature, about the origin, about the development of suffering. And he wanted all beings to learn how to live their lives with great serenity and equanimity and to be happy, to be contented. We talked about contentment the other night. And so he offered in his most basic teaching, which shows up over and over again throughout all of the suttas, what he called the Four Noble Truths. And so these are truths that you really begin to understand from... um, any level of awakening. You really begin to see that they're true. That's why they're noble, actually. So he said there is suffering. We do suffer. He differentiates suffering from pain, actually. So he says there is suffering, and we need to understand it. We really need to understand it. And the word dukkha, which he used for the suffering implies that there is nothing permanently or inherently satisfactory. That it's always a bit out of round. And the image that's sometimes given is a wheel that has, is flat on one side, so it keeps going kafunk and getting a little stuck. That makes a lot of sense, actually, when we think about our lives. You know, we often have lives that are just a little bit out of round and they keep going kafunk. And he said... In the second of the truths, that there's a cause for this, for this dukkha. And he says, the cause is that place in the heart and mind that always wants things to be different from the way that they are. We want things to be inherently and permanently satisfactory. 
And so this, we get very, very attached to some idea about how our lives or the world should be. And, and it's a kind of holding on really tight, I think sometimes of addiction and possessiveness and those kinds of words for that kind of attachment. And then in the third truth, which we mentioned a little the other night, he said it's possible not to get caught. That's, this is the really wonderful truth, you know, that, that we don't have to get so caught by our wanting things to be different. And then he gave us in the fourth truth the Eightfold Path, which is, is how we can live our lives with wise understanding and intention and um, learning to live wisely and carefully and training the mind, eight different steps along that way. We'll probably talk about that some more later towards the end of the retreat. So there was that teaching about suffering and the nature of suffering. And he also gave a second really great teaching when he talked about karma. And the word karma actually means actions. And he basically was pointing to the fact that our actions have consequences. Intentional actions have consequences. And so your actions are kind of like you know, if I hit the bell, it reverberates for a while. And so you do something, and it reverberates for a while. And, you know, it might be for a very long time for certain kinds of actions. It's always interesting to me to think about the actions of the Buddha. And the Buddha lived and walked around and taught, and here we are in California 2,500 years later, still inhabiting the reverberations of his life. That's amazing. Really, when you think about it. I don't think in 2,500 years anybody's going to be talking about Mary Grace Orr. I really don't. And probably not about Bob Stahl or Marcy Reynolds either, although I might be wrong. You know, you never can tell. So, so that, that always lets me know that you know, whatever it was that he did, that was enormous to create that kind of reverberation. And often, particularly in our sort of New Age culture here in California, karma is talked about in a really kind of simplistic way. You know, it's my karma. But it isn't simplistic. And the Buddha said there's a whole web of actions and their consequences. And it's very huge and complicated. And in fact, he said it's really unthinkable to figure out the karma that brings us to any particular moment. So, and you can just imagine, think of the karma that brings all of us here. So there's about 36 of us in the room. So each of you has all of your own histories, your moms, your dads, the people that brought you here, the people that build Spirit Rock. You know, it just gets so, it just goes out and out and out so quickly. And it's huge. So, as you're going along, and a moment arises, something happens, a moment of perception, and in that moment, your mind is colored by your past experience. You have memories and influences, the way you were brought up. Sometimes this is really useful. It says, get out of the road. There's a car coming. You don't want it to hit you. You know what to do. Sometimes it's not so useful, and we react to a situation, and we continue a cycle of suffering. And it's really, really hard 
to see a situation just as it is without having any coloring of our view because of our past experience. So you could think for a minute about um, maybe your primary relationship or one that you were in once. And I always think about my first marriage when I tell this story. And think about what it's like when someone says, oh, I'll be home for dinner at 6 o'clock. And you say, great, I'll have it all ready. And then 6 o'clock comes, and um, maybe you're a little bit grumpy. You haven't had a great day anyway. And they aren't there, you know, and 6.30, and then maybe it's 7, and then you start thinking about that maybe they're squashed on the freeway, and then you get a little scared, and then you get angrier, and by now the food is burning or it's dried up, and maybe it gets to be 8 o'clock, and then they walk in the door. I would like to contend that we don't see clearly in such moments. We don't. And this is what, in the Buddhist understanding of things, is called ignorance. This is a kind of not seeing what is. We're not seeing clearly. We can't see clearly. We, we are seeing through the lens of the memory and of the past and of many, many stories. And so... Because of our stories, our consciousness does have those different flavors. Sometimes it's defensive, and sometimes it's angry, and sometimes it's afraid of abandonment, and sometimes it's terrified of something else, but we don't catch it because it's so deeply ingrained in our conscious and unconscious minds. And sometimes we even think we're seeing clearly. So there's a teaching that the Buddha gives called the cycle of dependent origination. And in this teaching, he describes how we go through these cycles of suffering and of these endless stories of these houses of the mind that Joseph talked about that we build over and over again. And there's some understanding that this is a cycle that is is about many lifetimes of suffering. And you can hold it that way. But it's also a really useful psychological teaching about the cycles of suffering that we inhabit in our own lifetime. And we all know those cycles. Every person here has been caught, you know, you suddenly realize you're in the same relationship again, or you're in the same job again, or whatever it is that you're doing again that you thought maybe you had figured out not to do, but there you are. So we come to a moment, and the moment is conditioned by all of the previous moments in your life. Everything, everything that has happened to you, here we are, it's about eight minutes to eight on Saturday night. So everything in your life, all of the conditioning from those moments has brought you right here to this particular moment. And your mind is conditioned by that experience, and your perceptions are colored by that. And so in this moment, in this very moment that you come to, we connect with what's happening in our world. And we recognize an event, we name it, there's seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. We make contact with 
whatever it is that's happening. And all of this perceptual process happens really, really, really fast. It's broken down in the teaching, but it, it happens very fast in our experience. And there we are. We're in the house of our story, and we're looking out through the windows, and we go, oh, I don't like that. Or we go, ooh, I really like that. And uh, we go, no, no, take it away. Or yes, bring it to me. Or get rid of it or whatever. So there you are. Your best beloved is walking in the door and it's 8 o'clock. And do you react from your story? I certainly did. You know? It's very, very hard to have a completely fresh and open mind at that particular moment. And usually, you know, we meet them and say, where have you been? You know, and there's a lot of anger and upset. And, you know, it's not too common to say, you know, I'm noticing that you're two hours late and, you know, I'm wondering um, what happened. So... Or, you know, maybe you've tried to inhabit the story that one day you were going to get to be perfect, right? And, and live out of that perfection. And there's a poet who um, has a wonderful line. She says, perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. <laughs> you know, so that story that we try to live in and it just doesn't work. So this particular place of coming into a moment and seeing through the lens and going, oh, yes, that's delicious, or oh, no, I don't like it, is very important because that's the place where you can interrupt the cycle. So this morning, Bob talked a bit about Vedana, about the feeling tone of your experience. And Vedana, the feeling tone of your experience, is the entire second foundation of mindfulness. So the Buddha thought, you know, this is really, really important. And it's that place where, you know, there's a sound outside and you go, oh, it's so delicious. Or there's another sound and you just don't like it. And if you don't catch it, you may be, you know, going after the deliciousness or or reacting with aversion to the not liking it. There's also a neutral, it's it's pleasant or unpleasant, or as the suttas say, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, so neutral. And the catch about neutral is sometimes we just don't pay attention and we don't see what's happening. We get a little bored or distant. And we all know, you know, if you see through the lens of your story... Um, we don't necessarily see what's there. So if someone walks toward you who looks just like your mother, your chances of responding to that person without having the story are pretty slim unless you're very careful. And if you had a great relationship with your mother, you might just go, wow, look at this really wonderful person who's walking toward me. But if you didn't have such a good relationship, you might go, ugh. And you don't even know who this person is. You know, you have no idea what their story is. And we, we've all done that. We've fallen. I mean, have, has everyone in this room fallen in love with the wrong person at least once? You know, you thought they were somebody. 
and then they weren't because you, you saw something that didn't turn out to be there. And then we cycle through a whole cycle of pain and suffering. And I mean, sometimes it's marriage and babies and divorce before you figure it out, actually. And, and a lot of people get involved in the suffering. So enormous pain can arise, and it's not, it's not just the dukkha of the, of the Buddha. It's, it's really deep, deep pain that arises when we try to make reality fit our story and when we desperately want things to be different from the way that they are. So one of the things that's really important to understand is you cannot change what brings you to this particular moment. You can't change your conditioning. You are going to perceive things as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Whatever has happened in your past, abuse, difficult parents, difficult relationships, that's all happened. And you can't live ever in this particular lifetime as though it hasn't happened. So we are the inheritors of the reverberations of our own actions and those of others. This is what we call our karma, right? And you will experience a pleasant, uh, uh, you will experience things as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. <laughs> things will push your buttons that will bring up feelings. And what creates the problem is not recognizing that moment, not, not catching the place of desire or aversion, or boredom. We don't remember that the lens of the old story is there. And it's as though, um, a lot of the time I wear contact lenses, and it's as though I forget that they're in there, you know, and think that's how I really see. Or maybe if you put a colored contact lens in, and then you forgot that it was colored. And so we get involved, and we continue the cycle, and we do the story all over again. So, the stories that we were talking about. So, this person grew up, my friend who had the difficult childhood experiences with doctors, and, and um, because of these really difficult experiences in which she felt small and extraordinarily vulnerable and terrified and shamed and wasn't able to defend herself, Then as she grew into adulthood and um, different things happened with her body because this is what we're doing this week, right? This is what happens with bodies. And she responded often through the lens of that story and treated her own body as though it were damaged and often was really unwilling to seek out any help because she was too afraid of what happened in doctor's offices and hospitals, and so she stayed away from medical treatment. So she lived in the house of that story that had been given her about bodies and health and taking care of them. And I, who was caught in my story about this new relationship, and I wasn't so terribly skilled at relationship at that point, and so I saw my marriage through that particular lens and saw it as being really unpleasant and difficult and there was a lot of pain and I saw the new person through that lens, you know, the in love lens, which is always a tricky one, not usually reliable. And that seemed pretty yummy and pleasant and something that maybe I want. 
And one of the most frightening things to me now as I look back on that is I never saw that at all. I was utterly and totally deluded, utterly and totally deluded and completely prepared to act out of that story, completely prepared. And so our friend Ahimsa, seeing through the lens of his story about how his teacher was totally to be trusted. You should listen to this story because there's something to be learned about teachers in this one, you know. They're not always trustworthy, which we actually know, and we've heard other stories about this. So he really believed his teacher, and he went out and began to kill, and his way of counting was to cut a finger off from each of his victims, and he strung them on this big cord, and he wore them around his neck, and so he got a new name, which was Angulimala, and... Um, which means a a mala, a string of fingers. And so he sort of became the serial killer of his day, and he got busy, and he got up to 999 victims. And then one day, it was getting hard to find people, because if if they heard he was in the neighborhood, everybody would hide. And so he actually had made a decision that maybe he would go and he would kill his mother. And in Asian thinking, thinking all over the world, killing your mother is not a good idea to do. Killing anybody is not a good idea to do, but especially your mother. And so he was headed off to, to his village to find mom, and he saw a monk walking through the forest carrying his alms bowl. And we know who the monk was, right? This was the Buddha who was out for a walk. And then the poor old Emperor Wu, who was caught in everybody else's story and nobody would tell him the truth. It's quite like the story about the emperor who had no clothes. And so, you know, he'd ask about spiritual practice and they'd tell him easy things like diet and exercise and build a monastery and those kinds of things. And one day in his court, he looked up and there was a most unusual man for a Chinese court. He was tall and he was red-haired, and he was blue-eyed, and so he seemed like this giant who had showed up. So things that are inherently difficult become much worse when we don't see clearly, and they become confusing and even more satisfactory. But the really, really good news is that we can interrupt the cycle. We can... We don't have to react. So you can notice, and we really invite you to notice while you're here, that whether your experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. You know, what's happening in this very moment? How is it? You can notice when desire or aversion or boredom are arising. So you really begin to catch that place, you know, what's, what's happening. And, you know, there's a teaching that as someone comes toward you, and you could, you could play with this here because there's people wandering around. There's a whole group of people who are in the other retreat, you know. And so somebody comes toward you and just notice your reaction. Oh, she looks interesting. You know, oh, no, not, 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 not that one. That one doesn't, that one doesn't look healthy, you know. Or, oh, whatever. Or maybe there's people, you know, sometimes you realize, oh, you've been walking by somebody and um, 
seen them a lot, except you've never seen them because it's kind of neutral. They don't register pleasant or unpleasant, so you just don't see them, which is not so helpful either. So in any situation, the question is, how can I interrupt the cycle of suffering this time? Can we do it differently? Can we do it differently? My friend, with a lot of work, began to understand that she was caught in a story. And after a while, she began to catch some of the reactive places. It's still difficult for this person, but it's better. And after a while, she would, if she encountered a doctor or a dentist who wasn't very nice to her, she'd fire them and go find someone else because she understood that that was her prerogative to have people who were kind to her to take care of her. And she said one day after such an event, she said, I feel taller and more beautiful and like I have more energy. She'd really found some new freedom, you know, in her life. And I, with some considerable help, um, got my eyes opened a bit. And fortunately, I was reasonably careful and hadn't done anything too bad, kept my precepts and all of that. But I went to see a lama at one point, a lama who was teaching a retreat that I was attending, and I thought, surely this, I don't know why I thought, a Tibetan lama will tell me that I need to have a man who practices And he very patiently listened to the whole story. And then he looked at me and he kind of shook his head and he said, you must not hurt this man, meaning my husband. I was so annoyed. I did not (laughs) want that advice at all. And then I took a long trip and met yet another interesting man, except he was busy telling me about the importance of committed relationships, which I also didn't particularly want to hear. (laughs) But, you know, and after a while, I began to get it, that maybe I needed to reconsider and that I wasn't um, seeing clearly and that I was indeed caught. I'm still married to that husband, so, um, and it's now 15 years later, so we're doing okay. So I began to step out of that story. And Angulimala, our killer friend, he saw the monk and he started chasing after him. And he ran and he ran and he ran. And the monk just strolled along carrying his bowl. And no matter how hard Angulimala ran, they said, he couldn't catch him. And finally he said, stop, old man, stop. And the Buddha turned and looked at him and he said, I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, everything changed for Angulimala and he stepped out of the story that had been given him by his teacher. And the Emperor Wu, one of my real favorites, saw this amazing man and thought that this person might possibly see him differently since he wasn't part of his court and he might have something new to say. He might not be so caught in the story of what it is to be an emperor. So he said, sir, he said, I have a question for you. 
And he said, I've built many, many monasteries. And he said, what is the merit? What have I gained from doing this? And the wild red-haired man looked at him and said, no merit. So the emperor was immediately sort of perked up because you don't say that to an emperor who's built a bunch of monasteries that he hasn't earned any merit. So somebody was finally telling it to him as it was. And he said, okay, so what about these vast volumes of holy teachings, all the suttas and scriptures? And the tall, red-haired giant, who was, in fact, Bodhidharma, the great Zen sage, but the emperor didn't know that, said, oh, nothing special, vast emptiness. So then the emperor, you know, was really rocked to his core. And he said, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. (laughs) And by the time the emperor kind of got himself back together again, Bodhidharma had disappeared and he never saw him again. So my friend is living the rest of her life a bit more at ease with her body and its care. Not totally, still struggles with the story, but she knows the story's there. So that helps enormously. And my marriage has deepened and grown in ways that I could never have dreamed possible. And now we actually teach couples weekends on how to work with relationship as practice, how to work with the living organism of, of an intimate relationship and really work with an ongoing practice of how to take the lenses out of our eyes so that we see each other as clearly as possible. But, you know, there's always more lenses, right? You don't ever get to the bottom of them. And Angulimala stopped living the lie that his teacher had told him and became a monk with the Buddha. And then, actually, he practiced so diligently that he became an arahant, a fully enlightened being, although he continued to experience the reverberation of having been a murderer every now and then. He'd go into a village where they would recognize him and he'd get stoned and the Buddha would say, you know, you have to bear it because this is the reverberation of those past misdeeds. Mm -hmm. He also became very good at helping women in childbirth, which is something I've never really understood. Nobody seems to understand it. And now if you're pregnant, there's an Angulimala chant that they give for you to help you along. So he gets to help bring beings into life instead of escorting them out. (laughs) So so we don't need to continue. Even if you're sitting here thinking, oh, but my cycle, I'm so caught, you know, I'll never, ever get out of it. That's not true. And we can learn. I mean, if Angulimala could do it, you know, pretty much anybody could do it, I think. We can learn to be present. And so the word vipassana, one of the translations of the word, is to see clearly, you know, to really look at every situation and try to see it as clearly as possible and not to think that you know. You know, knowing is really dangerous stuff. It's really dangerous stuff. Don't know, you know. Just like Bodhidharma said to the Emperor Wu. 
And you can live sometimes. It's much more important to live with a question if you don't yet know the answer. Rilke has a, a wonderful quote. He says, I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So the Emperor Wu, who had met Bodhidharma and who saw who Bodhidharma saw the emperor clearly and, and actually helped remove some of the stories from the emperor's mind. And so the emperor Wu began to even question, you know, the basic story of who was he? You know, who are you? I totally recommend it to you. Try it, you know. Ask yourself, who are you sitting there on your cushion? And then try, I don't know. It's actually really fun and um, makes life a lot easier not to know. And so he, he, the Emperor Wu began to step out of his emperor story and periodically he would sneak off and sign up at a monastery and he'd be there as a monk for a while and he'd sweep and he'd scrub the toilets and all of those things. And then after a while the court would figure out where he'd gone and they'd put up a bunch of money and they'd buy him back from the monastery. So it's a really good deal for the monasteries. And um, they'd have the emperor for a while and then he'd do it all over again, you know. So he didn't completely escape his emperor karma, but he also began to find a way to live a, for what was for himself a deeply spiritual life. Each of us has a story about who we are, you know. That's one of the deepest stories that we carry around. And we have a story that we are a solid and separate self. And sometimes, as Bob, I think, was saying the other day, we have the sense that everybody else is going to die but me, right? Where we, um, alone among all things, are permanent. And it's this story about being a solid and separate self is the one that creates the most suffering of all, the most basic story. So who are you standing there? You know, and you could tell me. I mean, we could, you could probably give me a long list of who it is that you are rather than trying on, I don't know. I don't know. As I've been saying in my groups, I don't think I've said it in the hall yet, but I'm very enamored of the images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Maybe I did say that the other night. But every time I look at them, that who are you question is just so in my mind. There is, there was an image today of the entire, they've cobbled it together from a number of pictures of the Milky Way galaxy. All, so this image of billions of stars. Somewhere in there is the Earth, right? And this is only one galaxy of billions of galaxies. So, you know, what am I? Who, I mean, who am I doesn't even make sense then. And what am I really becomes more the question. You know, what I, at one point I coined the phrase I called myself little speck. 
because that was about as good as I could get was a little speck. You know, some something that stardust has managed to decide to do for the time being. It's pretty interesting, actually, and very helpful in letting go of that sense of self. So in that moment of presence, which you're practicing doing this week, when we perceive clearly, when we have a moment to respond out of the present moment rather than to react to our story, this is a moment of freedom. This is a moment of getting off the wheel. This is a moment in which we've torn down the house of our story, at least for now. So the Buddha, in the end, it is said, was free from all stories. And this was what he said after his experience, his, first ex- his enlightenment experience. He said, seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridgepole is shattered. My mind has attained the peace of Nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. So let's just sit just as you are. No need to change your posture and breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for listening. And you have about 40 minutes for walking practice before the last sitting and a little bit of metta practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.